What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis. Daryl Hudson, also from Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello everyone and welcome to a very, very special edition of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. Today, Daryl, Aresha, and I are casting from the virtual floor of the IEPHS 2021 annual meeting that has a theme, racism, power, and justice, achieving population health equity. There's truly a ton of compelling work on health disparities featured at this year's conference that I'm sure we're all itching to check out over the next few days. Now, for today's podcast, we're gonna do things just a little bit different than usual. Our doors are wide open for the next hour or so for folks to kind of stop through and chat about research that they're presenting over the next few days, interesting papers that they've seen at the conference thus far or looking forward to, and just their general overall experience uh, with the kind of conference. So let's go ahead and see who can, we can get to stop through and chat with us a bit in our virtual lounge. That's it, I'm done. Awesome. All right, so I guess we'll just have like an open kind of conversation and just kind of like have people kind of like go as they come. So Jennifer, I think you were first in the room. Could you tell us like a little bit more about who you are, uh, what institution you're from, what's your field of study? Absolutely. Um, I am a PhD student at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Um, I'm studying health policy and management. So that's a little bit about me. Um, and then I work at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. And I'm doing research on health outcomes, specifically with obesity and babies. Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, hey, Missouri Connection. Both Daryl and I are at, uh, in St. Louis. So <laughs> welcome, awesome. welcome to the podcast. Thank so you. what are you, what, what are you presenting anything today? Uh, what drew you to the conference this year? Um, a lot of my classmates had decided to attend. So um, I thought it would be great to attend as well. Um, I had heard great things about um, this conference. So I just thought I'd give it a try. try. Okay, strong enough reason. Great. Oh, welcome. And we know it's it's not an ideal experience because we're not all together, but um, we're we're hoping to to have some semblance of networking and um, and connection today. So thanks for thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, let's go around and just like everybody just, yeah, let's introduce yourselves, kind of your name, your institution, your field of study, and then maybe what drew you to the conference this year in particular. Yeah, let's go to uh, Susan. I saw her come on second. There we go. Hi, so sorry for the glare here. Um, so I'm in uh, at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and um, I came to public health by way of anthropology. 
and uh, just started the tenure track this year and am here to uh, learn as much as I can because uh, I feel like I kind of jumped in at the deep end in uh, public health and population health. So. <laughs> sure. It's all a deep end. It's all a deep end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, and, we haven't figured it out yet either. <laughs> yeah. So um, kind of what I do is use um, ethnographic methods to try to look at um, sort of what's going on. We're, we're actually a really diverse community despite our size. And um, so currently I'm looking at um, uh, the experiences of refugees in kind of interacting with and navigating the healthcare system, particularly prenatal care and oh, wow. uh, childbirth. Sure, very neat. Well, welcome on Susan. Who wants to Thanks. take a stab next? I've lost track of the order it, uh, that everyone came in. So just jump right in. I'll jump in. I'm Natalie Goff. Um, I'm in Jackson, Mississippi. And I serve as the interim dean for the John D. Bauer School of Population Health. And um, I'm fairly new to Population Health and to this organization. So I'm just here to meet people and see what I can take in. Awesome. Well, welcome. Yeah, thanks for joining up. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I guess I can go next. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Gail Walter. I am a lecturer at the University of Iowa, and I am in the Department of Health and Human Ph Physiology. And the primary courses that I teach are on the social determinants of health, the healthcare system, and cultural competency. Mm -hmm. So I, I love <laughs> so many um, choices of really good presentations to go to, but I'm just hoping to gather more information and then uh, share that information with my students. Great, thank you. Hello, my name is Lolita Jones. I am the president and co-founder of Population Health Analytics Association Incorporated. I'm based in New York and professionally, I specialize in coding, documentation and analysis of social determinants of health data. And the documentation is Poor, but it's getting better than, than it used to be. Thank you. Coding documentations. Uh, why? Well, we got to talk. Like, <laughs> definitely <laughs> use your help. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm Dana Williamson. I am a behavioral social scientist by training, um, and I'm currently um, housed at the EPA. I'm an environmental health fellow there. And um, specifically, pre prior to being at the EPA, my research was related to um, environmental justice and community capacity building. And so those continue to be my specific areas of interest, as well as program evaluation um, and planning for sustainability. And so this feels like a great home for me. I've attended IAPHS um, a few times, and it's been great to network with like minds um, as my areas of interest are definitely interdisciplinary. So nice to meet you all and happy to be here. Nice to meet you too. Thank you. Thanks for coming. All right, let's Hi. keep. Yeah, I'll continue going. Can you hear me? Hey, yes. Mindy, yes. Yeah, nice to meet you all. Sorry, I'm not, I can't share a video at this moment, but I've been, I, uh, my name is Minhi and I'm a postdoc at the UCSF. Um, and I was trained as a sociologist and social work researcher in my work is in the intersection of 
um, segregation, residential and school segregation in um, health over the life course. And so excited to see many of you who are in the field uh, making the changes happening in the field. Um, and I'm here to just to um, get more know of many of works you are doing. Yeah. Sure. Thanks for stopping by, Minhee. I want to put out disclaimer that I invited a couple of people to come, and Minhee, I'm glad that you uh, actually showed up. You got a yeah, actually, yeah. Show. I have to jump out a little bit afterward because I'm, uh -huh. but I just wanted to hear what you you guys are doing. I mean, <laughs> okay. I have enjoyed re listening to uh, the podcast. So, oh well, you actually lose. Oh man, okay, that's that's great. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's keep turning through some introductions so we can uh, get to some questions. Who hasn't gone yet? Hi, and apologies, I joined a little late. Um, so I, you, you we're doing introductions. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Alexis Dennis. I'm a sociology PhD candidate at UNC Chapel Hill, and I study um, racial and socioeconomic disparities in health across the life course. I work with Bob Hummer and Allison Alello in social epidemiology, um, and I'm really happy to be here and listen on the conversation. Sure. Thanks, Alexis. I am Kathleen Soule. I am a research investigator at the University of Michigan and I study disparities in cognitive aging. I also work with Mike. So SDH. Um, <laughs> so I'm just I just I'm like attending the conference and I saw this on the schedule. So I just wanted to jump in and hear what you all were talking about. Kathleen, is this your first time going to IPHS? Officially, yes, but you remember I had I was part of it with racism lab last year. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We were, yeah. Very cool. But officially, Local, but... first IPHS. So I, I really enjoy the, the 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 schedule, the programming, and the virtual space was very impressive. I don't know if that's this is like my first online conference that I've actually attended too. So I don't know if this is normal, but I really enjoyed it. it really looked like a conference hall. Yeah. It's not normal, but we, we have a, a outstanding administrator, Sue Bevan, who's here. And uh, she's wonderful, as well as the, the team that we've contracted with. They do a wonderful job of making the conference feel like an actual conference, despite being virtual. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have this space is just to, to forge connections. Um, so hearing what each other is working on and, you know, a lot of the, the great things Mike and I were just talking about before you all joined. One of the great things about meetings is that you get to meet new people and get reinvigorated and learn about new areas. And so um, obviously there's some of that lost in the virtual format, but we thought this would be a good place to connect with you all, learn about what you all are doing, and also to um, record it live also for, for listeners to, to tune in and learn a little bit more about what you all are doing as well. So thank you all for joining. Did we, did we get everyone's introduction? It looks looks like it. If not, just yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think that's everybody. Great. Well, one thing that that we have observed just really quickly is everyone's at a different level, and mm -hmm. so you might be a postdoc. This might be the first time you've attended the meeting. Um, really, kind of curious as to to how you got to where you're at. We've got people who are you know, independent, like Lolita mentioned, you know, having this independent firm, got other people who are, like I said before, just starting out as doctoral students and, and going into postdocs and whatnot. So 
anyone like to share like what their pathway has been like? How'd you end up in this world of population health and at IAPHS? I'm happy to speak up as a newbie. Um, yeah, yeah. We need we need to figure out how to recruit people. So this okay, is the okay. insight we need. Yeah. So I'm a uh, psychologist uh, turned student affairs administrator for a academic medical center. And through uh, being an associate dean of student affairs, uh, when our founding dean left the school, I became the interim dean of School of Population Health. And, and literally about two weeks before the pandemic, um, began serving in that role and have spent the last two years trying to learn about and understand population health and have been surprised at how much my training in counseling psychology kind of intersects with what's going on in population health. So. It's been an awesome learning experience for me. Yeah. Sounds like a real stretch opportunity, oh. as they say. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Definitely an opportunity. Thanks for sharing. So I can follow. Um, so I was, um, as a doctoral student, I was a part of the Health Policy Research Scholars um, Program mm -hmm. with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And um, being a part of that as a behavioral scientist really expanded my thinking outside of what I felt like um, initially was very narrow, um, look at individual, um, individual level change. And so by continuing to participate with HPRS, my, my I guess my, um, my thoughts on how much my work could be expanded outside of just that narrow view and how much I could actually um, interact with others outside of my um, outside of my discipline and how my work could actually impact policy and be more widespread was um, an awakening for me. And so then I came and participated. Um, so last year I, I listened in on IAPHS um, the virtual platform. And then prior to that, um, I was attending as a doctoral student and also um, presented some of my work in a panel discussion um, with environmental justice and racism. And so really just gave me an opportunity to connect with other folks and realize how this is a great space for me um, with the intersections of my work. For sure. Yeah, I think that's one of the at least for me, kind of things that I find really valuable about IEPHS too. It connects you with just so many different types of scholars that, you know, you would have otherwise had no idea kind of what their work is about and really just kind of like expands your own work in interesting ways. I know uh, Kathleen, who's on the call with us right now, we met outside of IEPHS, but it's a microcosm of this, right? And it, she's a clinician, like a met, actually knows how to measure some of the stuff that we talk about. And just like in conversations with they're just like, oh, wow, there's like changes my thinking about my own projects in really compelling ways. And IAPHS is just like a fantastic kind of site for all that, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. My introduction oh. <laughs> to IAPHS was through um, Maggie Hicken, our mentor, and Mike, and everyone else that's affiliated. I felt like I had just kind of a microcosm sort of experience to IAPHS um, more broadly. And so um, I've just, you know, through Maggie's influence and involvement at IAPHS, I've really enjoyed um, interdisciplinary work and just kind of learning about other disciplines and appreciating what other disciplines come to bring to the table too. So Mike is a sociologist and he's a statistician. 
I call I, I rely on him a lot <laughs> and I plan on relying on him a lot just to like think you know conceptually about these uh, ideas and you know also to hopefully pick his brain about some of the um, stat stuff but I I, I, I think I um, got a great introduction to IAPHS through um, the people um, at the university and then now just kind of see it on a bigger platform. Thanks for sharing. Anyone else care to share how they got into this field, what they're currently working on or hoping to take away from IPHS this year? Maybe I may just share uh, a little bit. Um, I am an international scholar. Uh, so I was trained, My I received my bachelor's and master's degree in Korea and got PhD in the United States. and at Michigan and just being Michigan opened up so many interesting phenomena happening within the United States, a lot of, and taking like Geronimus, Eileen Geronimus class in my second year, it just struck me so much. So by the, so um, although I'm not, um, I haven't experienced all the, those histories, like lived histories that many of, um, you have uh, gone through, um, I could um, resonate so much about the ways in which the systems uh, oppressed people is so true to many places around the world. Um, and the Korea where I'm from, um, there's stark disparities, socioeconomic, mainly socioeconomic disparity, but that's because there are not many foreigners. Um, begin with and it's and and the societal change like there are many increasing the voices now within korea to uh that many people are oppressed in gender and race ethnicity by those race and ethnicity and many other features so anyway <laughs> to make it short uh, i think there are is increasing needs for um those who are not u.s um scholars to are fascinated by the by the within U.S. dynamics of this race and racism, and it's such a great pleasure to um, the IHPS become a space where we could gather more of those voices around the globe. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing and thanks for bringing that perspective. Um, we like to hear different perspectives from from outside the U.S. context and. I think it's interesting. We need a pop culture expert to get about interdisciplinary, um, to get about these intersects with pop culture, especially Squid Game. Um, people seen Squid Game um, on Netflix. So I know that's become like a kind of like a example in the popular culture to, to highlight inequity um, and, and social hierarchy in, in South Korea. So that's a, that's an interesting um, watch if you haven't seen it before. Um, Anyone else care to share a little bit about themselves and how they're operating within this broad population health space? Hi, I'm Naomi. I came a little late, but I think I caught on to the prompt. Um, I am a PhD candidate in epidemiology and um, I, when I was doing my master's of public health in epi, I did like a public health policy concentration, which all of my epi 
cohort mates that was very strange of me to do and they're like don't you want to get a biostats minor and I was like not really <laughs> um and so I've always had that interest of like epi but with public health policy and population health and um so I more recently got involved with the Minnesota Population Center and now I'm a predoctoral fellow with them and so that has been a really nice space to just feel more at home than in my um, epidemiology division. And um, I saw, that's how I met Dr. Esposito and um, I saw he was gonna be here and I was like, well, then I wanna be here, so. <laughs> well, we appreciate you, appreciate you joining in for sure. Yeah, we need more of these hard epi folks to loosen up a bit and come over to population health, right? <laughs> So I guess to kind of like keep the conversation moving, because unless anyone else has anything to add it onto that prompt. Okay, so if not, like, I also, I wanna hear like what folks are presenting, if anything, uh, at the conference, right? And particularly if anyone's kind of like working at kind of like a weird intersection of a bunch of discipline with a bunch of kind of interdisciplinary team members. And if you're not presenting something, if you've had a chance to either go to kind of like a session already or kind of like just peruse kind of the uh, conference agenda, um, kind of like what things, sessions really stick out as like kind of interesting to you so far. Okay, I will, I'll start. I actually, first time in my professional career, which has spanned decades, um, presented a proposal. I was hey. a poster. I was actually looking forward to presenting it live, but you know, Sure. <laughs> other ideas. Um, my poster is in the um, Social Determinants of Health tab, and it's titled um, Share the Wealth, Reimagining the Medicare Disproportionate Share um, Program to um, Improve Community and Financial Health. And the, the kind of the long and the short of it is for decades, um, Medicare has given um, supplemental payments to hospitals that serve a larger percentage of the population um, who are you know, considered low income or poor. And my poster focuses on how that should be reimagined and those hospitals should be required to implement apprenticeship programs for people who work for the hospitals who are in low paying jobs. Because indirectly a number of healthcare systems actually contribute to the number of low income and poor people in their communities. Um, their positions like in the hospital cafeteria, housekeeping where you're stuck and you literally uh -huh. can't get out of that position. And most of those positions I present data don't even um, make $15 an hour, which is the new you know, wage for the federal employee. So it really is having those hospitals kind of look inward and say, okay, you're receiving extra money from the government because you treat so many low-income people, but you also employ a number of low-income right. people. So I'm going to also, um, once this is over, try to present it live as a, um, a session at various HFMA conferences throughout the country. But it was fun to do, just sad I won't be able to see people in the flesh. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. I mean, that sounds like a really rad project though. Like a tremendous, tremendous like idea of kind of looking inward at how these places are supposed to be generating care are actually kind of generating harm, yeah. How'd you get, how'd you, come to that project in the kind of first place? Actually, actually the, um, the CEO of Henry Ford um, Health System in Detroit 
last year was on CNN talking about how in the wake of the uh, murder of George Floyd, they had to really look at their system and look at how they were oppressing people. And it occurred to them that they had about 3,000 employees in their health system who did who barely made $7, I think, $7.50 an hour. And they realized most of those people were of color. Mm -hmm. So they immediately um, increased the minimum wage for those 3,000 people. And they said they were going to do other things as well. And it occurred to me, I thought, oh, I never thought about that. There are a number of people in hospitals that don't make $15 an hour, not even 12, not even 10. Literally, he said many of their people were making $7 an hour and they were working two and three jobs. And that's when I thought, okay, maybe there's something here from a policy standpoint. So, uh, and I also love to think outside of the box, but I do think a lot of the change is going to come at the local level. I really do, not so much federal. Who else has, oh, go ahead, Naomi. I'm organizing or organize a session that's going to be tomorrow. I'll put the title in the chat here. And um, it's all PhD students from the University of Minnesota who are doing different structural racism research. But my project in particular, I think, is very um, inter, I'm losing my words interdisciplinary <laughs> um, because it's looking at um, depressive how black students who attend HBCUs versus PWIs have different um, their mental health comparisons over long term so this is an ad health analysis so seven years later and 15 years later and I'm having a hard time finding a good home for it because of its, it's like, I'm an epidemiologist, but it's about higher education, but it's also depressive symptoms is the outcome. So it had actually gotten like invited to be in the um, health affairs session um, on structural racism. So I submitted it to that and then it got rejected, <laughs> which I think it was, um, got reviewed by maybe psychologists because my um, outcome was mental health, even though um, it's more of like a structural racism population health paper. So that's my yeah. paper that I'm thinking through right now. Look, Naomi, we're going to have to talk about that health affairs invite and then reject uh, for okay. reasons at another yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that, yeah, I mean, it is kind of like an interesting point about a lot of the work that you see here and how this is like one of the only spaces where people can look at you being like, I'm doing stuff from every field and everyone's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Right. And the rest of the yeah. world is kind of like, no, what are you doing? <laughs> You're yeah. a monster. Yeah. Don't do this. Right. <laughs> it makes it hard yeah. to publish for sure. Yeah. But every paper has a home. Every good paper yes. that is. So and that sounds like a really interesting topic. So um, certainly, hopefully, and hopefully Mike can help you to, to find that that appropriate home, right? Look, I know how to get rejected for doing interdisciplinary work. I don't know how to get it published, right? <laughs> That's a different thing. <laughs> we're, we're still building the airplane while flying it. So there you um, go. anyone else care to talk about what they're presenting at the conference? And if not presenting anything that you've seen so far that was like really just like, wow, that's a dope project. Nothing yet. We got a quiet crowd today. I know that y'all are going to sessions, right? <laughs> yeah. 
it's like the um the virtual class at this moment you got your you got your black boxes you got a couple <laughs> people who are who are cameras <laughs> on keeping the conversation going um but there, uh there was a oh, session oh the only session i've attended thus far was the, the the first session and there was a presenter who's doing research on the number of um people in california who live near um wells or excuse me oil drilling sites and how that's had an impact on their health and i was stunned how many of the 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 active um, oil drilling sites are um in residential communities i'm always thinking about texas where they seem to be out in no man's land and you never see houses or anything um, but this is actually california and of course the data is not good people having health problems um, many of the women um, in the area um, having premature births, people having respiratory problems. So um, that was just, you know, I was really, really stunned. So it was educational, but it also looks like there may be some policy changes because of the data. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah. I noticed a couple other new people joined us. So I'm going to put a couple of people on the spot. I see Andy, who's serving as our uh, secretary for this wonderful organization. Hi, Andy. How are you? Hey, Joe. Uh, not too bad. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks. Uh, we're just talking about our work and, and what we're doing at IAPHS. Would you like to share? Sure. So um, I'm not here presenting anything uh, of my own, um, but I am part of a team that is uh, presenting work later this afternoon, um, looking at housing quality issues, uh, comparing folks receiving uh, housing subsidies and um, similar income folks not receiving housing subsidies. And so it's just kind of a, a detailed look at how and to what extent um, public housing, housing vouchers can offer um, low-income families access to um, improved housing conditions. Um, does it work? Is it, is it positive? We have hope here? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated issue in some ways because there, there's so much stigma surrounding publicly subsidized mm -hmm. housing that the kind of baseline expectation is that public housing is just terrible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're not finding that that's the case. Um, but the main, the main positive benefit appears to be reducing um, housing crowding. So that uh, folks who get into public housing or housing vouchers um, appear to, um, to be much less likely to live in overcrowded conditions. Um, mm -hmm. That's what you want, right? So you'd want in increased housing affordability, mean that folks can have their own space. Um, and then in general, we're not finding that um, subsidized housing is exposing people to, to more housing-related quality issues than similar folks outside. Um, sure. Got it. it sounds like a, um, a zoomed in, more nuanced moving to opportunity program. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, it's like similar to MTO um, in the sense that it's focused on how housing programs can improve people's lives. Um, and it's, it's more focused specifically on quality rather than, than neighborhood characteristics. Uh, but that, that's certainly a piece of it too. And I should actually, I should name drop the author of the piece, Mizang Chu, who's a, um, a postdoc at George Washington University. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. You got it. 
Um, and then we also see that Whitney joined us. Whitney, are you there? Would you like to, to say a little bit about who you are and if you're here presenting or taking yeah, it all Yeah, I in? am here. Um, I am not presenting. I actually work with Andy. Um, and I am a postgraduate associate at Yale and I have a poster presentation up on rental assistance and, um, and mental health where we found that psychological distress um, was less prevalent in folks who had rental assistance than those who were on a wait list. Um, Andy's actually a co-author on that paper. Uh, but yeah, I also went to the presentation that I believe Lolita went to, which the, the information on the oil wells was so interesting and that analysis was fascinating. Thanks so much, Whitney. Yeah. Um, anyone else presenting or saw anything interesting so far in your IPHS experience? I went to a session this morning that was about, um, I don't remember the name of it, but it was um, Christina Bijou and Israel McKinnon both presented about different aspects of racial identity and um, different ways to measure like discrimination and how that affects mental health. And so that was really helpful to me since I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And they had some new citations that about how like a um, like a strong sense of racial identity is sometimes beneficial, but not always <laughs> depending on. Um, so that was helpful. And um, Christina had talked about um, how like identifying with white people or like feeling close to white people was related to um, better mental health or less likely to perceive discrimination maybe. Wait, among who? Who feeling closer to white people was good for them? They asked, uh, this was the NSAL. Um, so it was all black black US participants and they asked them like, how close do you feel to white people? Something like that. Yeah, I caught a little bit of that one. It's, it's a really challenging and counterintuitive finding. I wanted to follow up, but I had to to run to, to where we're at right now. Um, yeah. And it's definitely drawn from National Survey of American Life data. Um, and they use this concept of linked fate. So this idea mm. that people are close or apart to their, their racial group. And so um, I think the findings were such that people had identified um, as further away perhaps um, in terms of linked fate. Um, to their, their racial to their racial identity had better mental health. Um, but I think the author concluded that perhaps it's got to do with um, proximity. So sort of kind of overlaps with some of the work that, that Andy and Whitney could be doing in that people are closer to resources. So they're not in areas that are as deprived and they feel better. They have better mental health outcomes as a result of being in perhaps safer or having more resources in their neighborhoods. Gotta definitely read the policy policy section on that paper when it comes out, because that is uh, definitely a minefield to walk around. Just a, a quick yeah. comment about that. I think the early CDC data show that um, people of color, regardless of their income level and where they live, <laughs> didn't fare better with COVID. 
um, because I used to live in PG County in Maryland, which is one of the more, um, you know, where you have a larger Definitely. population of people of color, higher income, and that county still fared poorly in terms of COVID, um, which is interesting. I'm hoping that as time goes on, we find out. So that study coupled with the COVID study, that's gonna be interesting because the way you feel and your fate in, in terms of COVID just didn't line up. But thank you for sharing that. I'll have to listen to that. For sure, yeah. Yeah, lots of different policy implications. And Mike and I both do work in this in this space. And so we're used to having controversial and counterintuitive fighting. So um, yeah, I'd like to see that that paper when it comes up. I'm sure it'll be a fascinating read. I don't know, Daryl, do you ever get a result where sometimes you're just like, I'm just not, I'm just not publishing this. Like, I'll set this aside. I, I can't contextualize <laughs> this enough. Like somebody else take the take this one. TMC will take it. it will, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I just bury it with a, a really boring title. That's my, yeah. that's my secret, <laughs> secret sauce. Did we have somebody else new join? The, we got more squares on the screen. Yeah, oh, Juanita. Yeah. Are you there, Juanita? I am. I oh, cool. Just Hello. Hello. That's okay. We're just uh, talking about our work and if you're presenting at the conference and if even if you haven't or are not planning to do so, um, if you happen to, to check in at any sessions. I'm not presenting, I'm just attending. Um, so I saw this on there and I wanted to see what it was. Um, Got it, Fair thanks. Enough. Well, welcome, welcome for sure. Thank you. Yeah, so while we have so many bright minds in pop health here, um, you know, in addition to what you're working on and what you're being exposed to here at the conference, we're kind of curious about what are some key challenges that you see um, right now in the world of pop health. And so, you know, Lolita mentioned the elephant in the room, which is the pandemic, of course, it's all pandemic all the time. Um, but, you know, assuming that one day we'll get back to, to some semblance of normalcy, what are some of the other, or perhaps there's some intersections with infectious disease too. So what are some of the, the key, you know, population health questions or challenges that you all think that we should be thinking about and working on into the future? So I, I have something and it, it's it's maybe a little tangential to what you're talking about, but I it, um, it's sort of concerning to me on occasion that in order to really do high impact work in pop health, you you need a lot of institutional resources to access mm -hmm. that. Um, like you need a data center, you need like, um, grant infrastructure, you need all these things. That, and, and so they're, and it's growing over time. So I feel like there's, there's really been kind of a divergent inequality in um, what kinds of institutions can support the type of work to really move the needle on pop health and inequalities. Um, and it's concerning because there are folks at lower resource institutions who, who are doing awesome mm -hmm. stuff. Um, 
And in some cases, they, they just can't get the resources to get the restricted data to get access to um, you know, postdocs. Who would, I mean, it, so it's just this, this larger issue. And I'm not quite sure what the, um, the solution is, but um, I thought I would put that out there as a question to see if anyone has any thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a concern and trend and kind of like going to be a barrier, I think, even increasingly so, like in the coming kind of years, right? Like thinking of especially about like how, you know, some real proprietary data sets that like have like, you know, some private company that's collected social security numbers and the residential kind of patterns of like individuals, like over 10 years, right? And how that costs like a million dollars and like only a handful of like researchers at real private institution are real elite and, and well resourced institutions can really kind of like afford to access that and then just in, in engage with like, you know, real important kind of housing kind of population health questions, right? Like it's just completely walled off from like everyone. And it's like, what is that going to do to science? And like, how did we ever get to this point? It's going to be interesting for sure. To pile on to Amy's comment, also, um, you know, schools without those resources, they also, the faculty may have higher teaching loads at that school. So it becomes even increasingly more difficult when you don't have the resources. You also have all these other factors um, that can um, impact your resources time in order to conduct the type of research that has the high impact that you referenced. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think these are, are really spot on questions and observations. Um, so Andy, thanks for throwing that out there. I think it's absolutely on point. It's not tangential at all to me. I think even broader um, considerations for, for science funding in general. Um, so who determines what gets funded? Where's the funding going? Does it go to like the elite private or even public universities that have a lot of resources? Or is it being spread and distributed in a way where people who do come from um, universities that don't have as many resources can actually do the work? Naomi, it looks like you wanted to, to add to it, add to the conversation. Yeah, this is sort of a plug and sort of a small way the Minnesota Pop Center is trying to um, make some headway on that is that in our recent Pop Center grant, they wrote in money and time to collaborate with researchers at other mm. universities that have less resources to partner with them. And um, because we have so much like grant writing support and administrative support and all sorts of things that people at um, smaller universities or HBCUs, minority serving institutions don't always have. So we don't, we have been struggling with how to recruit people for that. So if anybody knows like um, people who fit the bill of like, you know, great research ideas, but don't have the institutional support, we're looking for people to partner with. Oh, yeah, email us that, like, that's our job. We're supposed to promote things like <laughs> the innovative things like that. So yeah, well, definitely yeah. since the info, we'll promote it. I could say one thing that I kind of grapple with um, in thinking about population health is kind of this idea of intervention studies. Um, and what does that look like at a population level? Um, and um, as, you know, population health and kind of funding resources and things like that are moving towards intervention studies, 
from a social perspective and a social scientist perspective um, working in population health, what does that look like? Um, and, and how is that conceptualized? Um, and how do we kind of integrate that into the, the medical model of population health? Yeah, that's a, that's a critical question and, and one that I, I certainly do not have an answer for. But it reminds me of the, the title for our podcast, Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, by, um, you know, that's based off of the, the seminal work of Jeffrey Rose. And he, he raises this question about population level interventions. And so if you're thinking about population prevention of, of poor outcomes, what do you need to do and how do you, quote unquote, intervene at a population level? Or do you do something that's more high risk? So is your high risk strategy you know, based on screening? Is it based on people who have certain characteristics who live in certain areas, belong to certain groups? And, and I think the jury is still out. So in terms of how to intervene at the population level, a lot of people think about policy as, as the, the lever to go, but policy is really difficult to, to, to move the needle on. And I think a lot of times, in my, in my humble opinion, we don't talk a great deal in, in these fields about politics and how politics really determine a lot of what gets funded, what the priorities are, and communicating with key stakeholders about what we should really be, be paying attention to. So um, certainly don't have an answer there, but that's a really great observation and question. Yeah, I think you touched on kind of like that natural experiment, like with the policy interventions and kind of we can study like, you know, the pre and post um, policy to understand how it can intervene at the population health level. Um, but I still kind of grapple with um, other forms of, I guess, conceptualizing the study, um, not necessarily kind of um, evaluating the impact that policies have had, um, if I'm phrasing that. Definitely, yeah. I think it's something that would be nice to see kind of moving forward with thinking about how we structure IPHS or annual meeting and just our membership in general. Cause we have like, and Daryl, remember that kind of podcast that we had where we had like kind of like the members on, I think it was uh, someone at Rice and then people in Houston that had like talked through kind of like how they kind of uh, kind of structured kind of a large scale intervention to kind of like intervene on some racial disparities in health there. Um, and it was like really, really interesting. And then at that point I realized like, Oh, I really never interact with these people, right? <laughs> like I just like at my conference, I go, I see my other kind of like solid academic folks that are just writing papers without thinking about the intervention side of it all. And like, even in this space that we've made to kind of like try to bring people together that look at, you know, issues from these different, um, uh, with these different goals at the end, like there's still a lot of kind of like self-segregating that goes on in this interdisciplinary space. And I think of like, you know, trying to bring out some of these conversations that Juanita mentioned um, and kind of feature them more in a way that, uh, you know, would draw people in or accessible to everyone would go a long way at trying to, um, you know, work through some of these conversations. Well, I realized my answer to this question was pretty much just everything Kamara Jones said in this blog post. So I'm just going to post that. And it's about, um, how like our values are, the specific values that are working against a public health approach, especially in terms of um, health disparities. 
Any anyone else? Those are some some major, large. You got to be careful what you ask in, in the podcast, right, Mike? Um, yeah, good luck solving them. Yeah, <laughs> some major uh, questions for for the the broad fields of population health. But um, anyone else have a, a key challenge that you think that we should be considering now and into the future? I don't know if there's anyone here who can speak to. I keep hearing that a number of public health professionals resigned, quit, have quit since the pandemic started because of the misinformation, the threats, um, burnout. I'm wondering when we're going to start to feel the, the impact of a lot of people having left the public health space. And if, if there's any preemptive strike going on at the local or federal level. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, that that was in the in the works for a while. Um, so I think there's a, a longer one way in terms of, um, you know, how different systems, including the federal system, responds to to public health disasters and maintains preparedness. I mean, even before the pandemic, I think the CDC budget was set to be cut by like 15 percent that January of 2020. So if you can imagine in the in the face of what we, we obviously we didn't know that we were heading towards such a um you know in our, our modern era such a, a big public health disaster but um i think this i'm actually feeling more energized now i mean it's been exhausting for sure um but in my own personal experiences it's been energizing to be within the broad field of pub, public health and population health and seeing people considering the same things that that we've been talking about for the length of time that I've been in the field for sure um and so it's it's been good I mean obviously there's been an uptick in applications and, and different people trying to get masters of public health degrees and um considering these things in, in ways that they hadn't before I mean obviously it took a pandemic and public health people always say that you don't know what public health is until something bad is happening and so now we we know what public health is for better or worse. And so um, hopefully we'll we'll take the lessons learned here and realize that you have to invest in the public health infrastructure and workforce. Um, hopefully that will lead to some changes in what happens with you know federal systems and how people are brought in or not. <laughs> um, how people are you know the the communication messages that are are disseminated out and all that. So. I don't think anyone has been pleased with how things have unfolded over the last 20 months or so, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I ahead, agree. And I, and I think it's confusing when you see, um, you know, our health professionals also protesting, um, you know, against vaccine mandates in the workplace or, um, you know, not wearing a mask or whatnot, um, you know, as health professionals were also, you know, health leaders. Um, and for, you know, people who aren't in the healthcare world, that's confusing. You know, when one provider is saying something and someone else in the health system is saying the opposite, uh, you, know, you know, no wonder there's so much information out there. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of it may not be accurate. Um, so yeah, I think that's been like something that's been hard, especially with this pandemic is just how do you share accurate information um, and how do you dismantle um, all that other information that is just confusing everybody. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of test studies that you can, for better or worse, you can pull out of this. So you can use all sorts of case studies and figure out ways to improve our messaging, which oftentimes, at least again, as long as I've been in, in public health, um, we've known that our communication strategies are not up to snuff. We've known that we don't have adequate investment in communications and, and we've seen that roll out. And so the assumption that you could just put accurate information out there and people will take it and uptake it and make good policies is not necessarily what what happens. And so I think we've gotten a harsh dose of that reality. And so hopefully that'll again that'll lead to some changes and in, in how we instruct students, how we craft messages, and also how we combat myths and disinformation. So just a plug for Last year, even before the vaccine was rolled out, we had a um, couple guests there presenting at this year's IAPHS. Um, Rich Carpiano and um, Devin Grayson talked a lot about, um, they, they do a lot of work in, in vaccine, in general vaccine work, and they they did some, some work thinking about vaccine uptake. And so they're, they're gonna be presenting on that um, during this conference as well. So that's a good, that's another good perspective, Jennifer. Thank you. How about um, anyone else have anything to add about our unwieldy of <laughs> challenges contemporarily into the future? Well, if, if not, unless Daryl, you had any other questions, I think that puts us about at time we're supposed to wrap up at 1230, right? So unless anybody had any massive uh, concluding remarks. I guess we can go ahead and kind of wrap up and let everybody get back to the very exciting conference. I guess I can make um, some more kind of food for thought, I guess, not really any solutions. But so as I'm in this space, as I'm in this new space, um, as being um, an environmental health fellow at EPA, I'm finding that Unfortunately, while I see that, um, you know, I'm in an agency that has or should have a public health focus, I see the, the connections broadly. Many folks that are there are not social scientists. They're not public health oriented. And so they have no concept or very small understandings of social determinants of health, um, large impacts of policy on health, structural um, forces that impact health. And so it's a, ch it's a challenge to kind of be in that space and think about like, well, prior to my being there, being, you know, with IAPHS folks and us having a full understanding of how those things intersect, but when I think, um, Juanita, you mentioned like interventions and the policy impacts of those interventions, um, you know, evaluation isn't something that folks that often at federal agencies outside of CDC have expertise in, so they don't even know how to do that. And so it's, we're, we're kind of in this world over here on the academic side, but when we think about the true impacts that like policies have in health, those skills, the people that have those skills are not in those spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's a challenge um, how to merge the expertise 
I guess, across um, or outside of academia. Um, yeah, just kind of a download of thoughts, but it's definitely a disconnect. Thanks for sharing. And you, you're the perfect person to have raised something like that, uh, especially given Lolita's previous question about what's happening in um, different agencies, especially at the federal level, and that connection or mis disconnection between what's happening in the, the practitioner space um, versus what's happening on the academic and, and policy sides as well. So um, yeah, certainly no, no, no major, unless Mike or someone much smarter than me, which I'm sure everyone here is, um, has a, a <laughs> A good solution there, but thanks for for bringing those those um, observations to to the fore for sure. Definitely, and I just got a note from our coordinator. They are have to shut down the room in literally one minute. So I just want to say while we still have you, thank you everyone so 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 much for taking time out of your busy schedules to come and chat with us. This was great, um, and hopefully we can well hopefully we'll be in person next year. So we never have to do this again. All right. Thank you, everyone. And we will Thanks see so much. you in the conference elsewhere. Thanks Enjoy. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.